things as we get started this morning before we jump into the message. First of all, it's the last week of Suit Up, which also means it's the last week of our student section having a fat head for the morning. And so we might have saved the best for last. So uh, whoever it is, show them. Let's, let's see what we got this morning. Uh, got our children's ministry team. At least Anna Grace is wearing the appropriate attire, roll tide. All right. Give them up, give it up for them. It's been a fun series that we have been in with uh, Suit Up as we walk through the uh, armor of God. Uh, one thing I want you to notice on the way out is that we have intentionally put a table in the way that's going to back up traffic just a little bit as you leave. The reason for that is we have put some cards on that table that are invite cards that have our Christmas schedule on it. And so uh, just so you're aware, we do have Night of Worship coming up on the uh, 13th and the 15th. Uh, we'll also be doing it again at uh, Celebrate Recovery that week. And then on Christmas Eve this year, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, we're actually doing three gatherings, 9 o'clock, or uh, 8.30, um, 10 o'clock, and 11.30. I think that's right. That's nowhere near right. 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11. Did I get it right that time? Sorry. 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11. And uh, I, I want to kind of explain why we're doing that and why I've asked you to pick up a card on the way out. So for 17 years, when we, when we started this church 17 years ago in 2006, um, the heart of those of us who were here that planted LifePoint at the very beginning uh, was we just kind of looked around our community and felt like that something was missing. And it wasn't that we had a problem with other churches. Uh, in fact, most of us were student pastors, and what we were noticing was uh, a very engaged student ministry, and then they would go to college, and they would have kids before they would come back to church. So it was just a gap. And the only reason they were coming back to church is because they had kids. And they wanted kids in the children's ministry. And so um, we began to look around and realize that there was a large segment of our community that was going unreached. And we made a commitment 17 years ago to do the things that nobody was doing to reach the people that nobody's reaching. And, uh, and we're proud of that, something that we've been able to see. Uh, we've seen over 1,000 people be baptized in the last 17 years. And uh, we have seen incredible work that's been done in... Um, in, in recovery and, and just in life change discipleship in general. And the primary way that we get people to walk in those front doors is a strategy that we call invest and invite. Uh, we don't do very, we don't, we don't do like a lot of marketing. We do some social media marketing. We don't do radio ads and we don't put stuff on billboards. Uh, you are the marketing plan. We ask that you invest in people who are far from God and invite them to church. Now, here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. 86% of people that attend church say the way they began attending church was they were invited. And 75% of people who don't attend church say they would give church a try if somebody would invite them. So if you know somebody that you're like, man, this person needs to be in church, uh, one invitation could make all the difference in the world. And so this is what I'm asking you to do on your way out. I want you to grab some of those cards. I want you to use them as an invite card. I want everyone to get at least one. Okay. Now you can get more than one. And maybe like at lunch, you, you leave one for your server. If you do that, you better leave a great tip, by the way. I don't, you know, like, it's not like that can be your tip, all right? And church people, I've heard of the worst, so don't pull that stunt. At least not life point people don't pull that stunt. Uh, but you can find ways to just throw it out. But here's what I want. I want at least one card. Listen carefully. I want at least one card to be reserved for a personal invitation. Like you hand it to that person and say, Please come sit with me at Christmas. Um, and again, there's three opportunities, all right? So we're going to pack the house out. 
uh, on Christmas Eve, and um, your kids are going to have an opportunity um, in the big room. Our, our worship band is planning a day of worship for them, be all Christmas in the kids' building. It's going to be awesome. So if you invite somebody that got kids, let me tell you what's going to happen. They're going to go home, and their kids are going to be in the car on the way home saying, we want to go back there next week, all right? And so invite people, invest in people, and let's get them here. Um, let's do the things nobody's doing to reach the people nobody's reaching, all right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. As we jump into the message, I pray that um, you would focus our attention and capture our attention and show us in your word the changes that we need to make in our lives uh, so that we can better understand your plan for our lives and not miss it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to make a big assumption today. Um, if in a few minutes somebody goes, whoo, I'm just going to assume you like my sermon and not whatever happened on the college football playoff committee selection. Uh, I'm also going to assume those of you who are watching that right now are actually just taking notes on your phone so that I can at least function. But I want you to know this, that while I'm real excited to know what's going on with that, the way Paul ends the book of Ephesians, the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, particularly in this passage and the way we're looking at ending this series, I think is quite possibly the most important of every message that we have looked at in this series. For the last 10 weeks, we have been in Ephesians chapter 6 looking at just six or eight verses, a real short section uh, in the book of Ephesians. And for those of you that may be unfamiliar with the historical context of what we call the book of Ephesians, which is very interesting, right? We have this thing called a Bible. Some of you had one growing up that sat on a maybe a, a coffee table and you didn't read it very much, or, you know, maybe you've, you've, you probably have one. There are not many people in the South that don't have multiple Bibles, but, you know, it's like a book, and then inside it we say there's books, which is weird because it's probably the only book you got that's got books inside the book, you know, unless you got, like, some of them trilogy series where it's, like, this thick. But it really, it's not a book. Like, the book of Ephesians is not a book, and the Bible's really not a book. The Bible's actually a collection of works. But inside this thing we call the Bible is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was in Ephesus, okay? And the interesting thing about this is, is that the Apostle Paul penned almost two-thirds of the New Testament, and those, those works are actually where he sits down and takes the time to write a letter to different churches, instructing them on either correcting their behavior or instructing them on, this is what it looks like to be who God wants you to be, to do what God wants you to do, and to live out God's calling in your life, right? Which I think is fundamentally so significant because of everything that I have watched in the last 45 years of my life, the biggest struggles for humanity is not most of the things that we make it. It's not the issues we make it. It's the fact that most of humanity has, a, has no understanding that their life was intended for purpose, that, that you're not just a collection of cells that you're not just some happenstance and some function of biology, but rather you were intricately designed with intent. To think that the God of the universe desired to know you, he created you, and he gave you purpose within that should inspire all of us to say, so then what does he want me to do? What does he want me to be? What is my purpose in life? And the book of, the book of Ephesians was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at, at Ephesus that I think gives them fundamental understanding of that. Now, the irony of it is, is that Paul wrote this letter likely chained to a Roman soldier or a Roman guard, 
We see three different times in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus, we see three different times where Paul mentions being in chains. And he was most likely quite literally in chains. He was at best under house arrest and more than likely chained to a Roman soldier. Now, the reason he was imprisoned, the reason he was in house arrest or chained to a soldier is really for doing what he is still doing as he's chained to him. He was imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus and his determination and his unwillingness to stop talking about Jesus. And yet, when he is chained to a Roman soldier, he continues to talk about Jesus and continues to write letters, which I got to be honest with you, I'm not sure I would do. I'd like to think I would do that, but I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that if I was being chained to a Roman soldier for talking about Jesus, I would hope I would have the faith to keep talking about Jesus, but I might at least try to hide it. Paul's like, I feel like Paul is like the kind of guy, he was writing and went, hey man, can you get this one of your buddies and get it over to Ephesus for me? Like he didn't care. And I think some of the reason that we see he doesn't care is found in the, in the pages of this letter that he writes where he is so compelled by who God designed him to be. And in this letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus, he gives us remarkable insight, not just about who God is, but about who we are. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins by telling us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He paints this abysmal picture about who we are. He says you were dead in your trespasses, you walked according to the course of this world, If that's not harsh enough, he says this, that you were all by nature children of wrath. I mean, not really a pretty picture, right? I mean, doubt you're getting that for a Christmas card this year. I doubt any of you open up your Christmas card. It's like, Merry Christmas, you child of wrath, right? It just doesn't sound very, you know, it doesn't sound very appealing, right? But then he turns right around in the, maybe the two greatest words in all of Scripture. And like verse 4 of chapter 2 says, but God, you were this. This was your best. On your best day, you walked according to the course of the world. On your best day, you were dead. On your best day, you were deceived. On your best day, you were marked by depravity. But God, being rich in mercy, he loved us so deeply that he sent us his son to purchase our salvation to pay for our depravity. And he says, now now because of that, Paul paints this beautiful picture of the possibility that we have to godliness, the possibility we have to honor, the possibility we have to live life, being who God designed us to be, doing what God wants us to do, and having a life that is, that is epitomized by purpose. And Paul continues to write. He says, by grace we've been saved It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. That way none of us have a reason to be arrogant. And he continues to write this letter, painting this picture. And he gets to the very end of the letter. And he uses a very important word. He says, finally. He says, finally. Now, I love this about Paul because sometimes you guys, you know, want to kid around, give me a hard time. You're like, man, Matt, we got that bottom line. I thought the sermon was over. And then you went on for about 20 more minutes. I just want you to know that I'm in good company. Because Paul says, finally, and we get a 10-part sermon series after finally. 10 sermons after finally. You only get 10 minutes after a bottom line. You have nothing to complain about, right? Paul says, finally, but here's what it is. I don't think he means this is the final thing that I'm going to say. Here's what I think Paul says. 
I think what Paul means by this is, let me wrap everything I've already said up into one big bow. In fact, I would say that Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 20, is Paul's bottom line of the book, the letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And in it, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And I think the people who were hearing his letter being read in the assembly that week or that day, 2,000 years ago, when they heard this, they would have been reminded of him saying that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you, were, you lived a life of depravity, that you walked according to the course of the power of this world, that you were by nature children of wrath. And he would be saying, listen, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might, and understand this, that your capabilities are not what sustain you and help you to become who God wants you to be. You know, I think one of the things that we deal with in this world, this culture that we live in, is that we are taught self-sufficiency, and we are taught that, that it is honorable to be able to do everything yourself, be independent, have no need for anyone else. But the reality is, is that Paul wants to make it very clear that you cannot be self-sufficient in the walk of Christ. In, in walking in the way of Jesus, you don't have enough capability, you don't have enough ability, you don't have enough talent, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not wise enough. The ability for us to do what God wants us to do, be who God wants us to be, live life on purpose, rest in our willingness to find strength in the Lord and to find our might in his strength. Like to be able to say, I'm not capable, he is. I'm not able, he is. I'm not talented enough, he is. And Paul says, finally, like understand this, everything about living life in purpose is going to be found in your willingness to transfer your trust and your confidence from your ability to his. And he goes on and, and to make this point very clear. He says, so in, because of that, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And as I began to look at this passage one last time this week before the message and just kind of thinking of summarizing all of it, I think the big thing that Paul is trying to help us understand in this passage of Scripture and in this letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus is that we underestimate just how strategic our enemy is. We underestimate that. We forget that there is an enemy that is out to destroy us, who wants to kill us, who wants us to be irrelevant, wants to destroy our testimony, wants to make us unusable, wants to make us ineffective. And that enemy has strategized for your demise. Let, let, let me say it this way. The enemy most likely thinks more about you than you think about him. He's developed a scheme for you. He knows the way you think. He knows the way you lean. He knows your tendencies. And he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you by, by destroying your confidence. He wants to destroy you by, by destroying your morale. He wants to destroy you by making you negative. He wants to destroy you by thinking that you're not important, that you have no capability, that there's nothing you can do. Paul says, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might, and put on the whole armor of God because the enemy has a plan for you. And it's not the plan I have for you. But you will fall victim if you don't put on the whole armor of God. And then Paul does this. This is so brilliant. Paul does this. He says that, and then he says, Therefore, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. He's like, in case you're not aware, in case I've underestimated for you or not said it enough, the schemes of the enemy are designed and taken, they, they are put into action by forces of evil that you can't even imagine. Like he says, look, we're not talking about your next door neighbor here that you have a problem with. We're not talking about somebody at work that you have struggled to get along with. We're not talking about in-laws and outlaws. We're talking about people. We're talking about forces that can only be defined by rulers and authority and powers, forces of evil, darkness that you can't comprehend. And you are in a war against those forces that have schemed against you. And so, therefore, for the second time, take on the whole armor of God. It's like Paul went, hey, you need to take on the whole armor of God because there's schemes and you want to defend yourself against the scheme. But let me tell you who's doing the scheming. And so if I haven't fully convinced you yet, you really need the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And this is my concern. This is my concern for me and my concern for you is that I think that the culture we live in, the prosperity that most of us tend to experience by living in a nation like the United States of America particularly, I think that very few of us really truly understand what it means to have and done all stand firm. I, I think that most of us consider our careers with far more interest than we consider our purpose. I think we consider relationships more than with, with, with other people and our next door neighbors and our friends and our spouse. I think we consider that more than we consider a relationship with Jesus. I think the priorities in our life, we have become so comfortable that we just, we just kind of let life happen and then we're caught off guard when something happens in life that we weren't expected. But we don't really we can't really say that we've done all. You know, th this is what I think. Having done all, we stand firm. I, I think that the goal of life for the believer would be this. That one day when we finally breathe our last breath, or Jesus emerges in the sky and calls all of us home, that that moment would happen seconds after total exhaustion. That we, that we would fall into heaven totally exhausted because we had done all. Because we had given every effort. We had left every stone unturned. We had pushed as hard as we could push. We had done the things nobody was doing to reach the people nobody was reaching. And we had done it to the place that we were utterly exhausted. We had given everything we had. I think that would be the epitome of what Paul is talking about when he says, having done all. Stand firm. Having given everything, having extinguished every possibility, having defended ourselves to the best way we have, we were able to remain steadfast and firm. It's, it's the reason that you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. It's the reason that we look through the pages of Scripture for information on how to do life because the author of life knows how to do life. And every time we try to shortcut and every time we try to go around and every time we go, well, that's outdated, 
Eventually, we find out that God didn't give us a set of principles because he wanted us to obey rules. He gave us a set of principles because what he wants for us is life and life to the full. And he, better than anybody, understands life. But unfortunately, far too often we underestimate our enemy. And for whatever reason, art and our imaginations has depicted our enemy as a red beast with big horns and a forked tail holding a pitchfork. And let me just tell you, for me, I don't think I have ever been convinced to walk away from God's plan. I don't think I've ever been tempted to do something less than what God wanted me to do or to do something more than what God wanted for me. I don't think I've ever been lulled into temptation by a red beast with big horns and a forked tail and a pitchfork. I think like Adam and Eve has looked more like a crafty serpent that crawled in the garden just simply asking a question. Like, is that really what God said? I mean, I just want what's best for you. I mean, that's pretty good fruit. I mean, why can't you have that tree? Doesn't look so bad. And the next thing you know, Adam's being presented a piece of fruit that looks good to eat desirable to make one wise and it's being served to him by a naked woman what kind of chance did he have in all the course of humanity plummets because we underestimated the allure of the enemy Paul says you got to do everything you can to stand firm he says so put on the whole armor of God and then he lists it out for us says You stand, therefore, by fastening on the belt of truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And for shoes, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, everything. Don't underestimate any opportunity, any possibility in every moment. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And over the last several weeks, and if you miss this, you can go back online. They're all archived. Over the last several weeks, we've done everything in our ability as communicators to share with you what each one of these pieces of armor is. To try to help you understand what the belt of truth is and the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness and feats, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the, faith, the, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. In fact, I would say this, that over the last several weeks... What we've tried to do in here is we've tried to prepare your locker room. We've gone to your locker, and in it we have put the helmet of salvation up on top. And in it we hung the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. We put some cleats in there. That's the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace. And We stuck your shield in there. We even put some of that leather on it with the wet it down so that it could extinguish the fiery darts from the enemy. And last week, Todd talked to you about the sword of the spirit. We hung the sword in your locker and said, this is the word of God. You need to learn how to use it. And if you were to walk into your, up to your locker, and maybe it's got your name, your number or something, you walk in there, much like the guys on the screen are sitting in their lockers, you would find everything you need to dress for battle. But the one thing we haven't shared yet 
is how to put it on. Because you see, I was, I, was in some, I was in sermon prep this week with one of our teenagers. And, uh, and I love this, by the way. We, we've, got a, we've got a small group of teenagers that are learning how to teach God's word. I'm just telling you, for the adults in the room, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be outpaced by our teenagers, just so you know. Uh, but we've got a small group of teenagers that are learning how to teach God's word. It's insane. And, and they do sermon prep, right? They, they sit in there, they take the whiteboard. And I was in there this week with Anna Ruth, and uh, I got to sit in on her sermon prep, her message prep. And she was in this really cool passage of scripture where Jesus said, there's two types of people, wise people and foolish people. So the foolish person hears these words of mine, but doesn't put them into action. And it's like a man who builds his house on the sand, and the winds come and the waves come, and the house gets destroyed. He says, but now there's a wise man, and he hears these words of mine and puts them into action. And the winds come, and the waves come, and his house stands. Same story. They're neighbors. Anna Ruth and I laughed about it because we realized we don't know where this came from, but all of us, when we hear that story, we imagine two houses on a cliff overlooking the ocean. We have no idea why. And right now, everybody who grew up in church goes, that's the same picture I got, and none of us know why. No idea. But they're neighbors. One house falls, one doesn't. Same condition, same weather, wind and waves. One falls, one doesn't. Same information. They both heard his words. The difference was putting them into action. See, over the last several weeks, we've told you everything you need to know about what the, about that, what the helmet is and the breast, all these things. But we haven't told you how to put it into action. How do you put on the armor? Well, luckily, Paul concludes this section of Scripture by saying this. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And if I were you and I was sitting there and I was listening to somebody talk up here, who just went over the top saying, I'm about to give you something that's so remarkable and so incredible, how to put on the armor. And then they said, praying. I would be like, maybe you're thinking right now and go, that was really big setup for a really big letdown. You mean to tell me, Matt, we're just going to talk about prayer? And see, therein I think lies the real issue is that our understanding of prayer is so skewed and so wrong. You see, for most of us in the room, we think of prayer as the response to the circumstance. And we think of prayer as preparation for the battle. But when we look at Jesus, what we find is that prayer is not preparation for the battle. It is the battle. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus in prayer sweating drops of blood. It's, where we, it's, it's at prayer that we see the anxiety and the battle. And then he gets arrested and he calmly walks to the cross and experiences victory. We don't see the anxiety at the cross. We see it in prayer. You see, you and I think that the battle is the cross and the battle is ministry and the battle is life and prayer is the preparation. The battle is the prayer and everything else after that is victory. 
That's the easy part. The ministry is the easy part. The life is really the easy part. The battle is in the prayer. But the problem is, is that most of us think of prayer as a parachute and not as the plane that takes us to the destination. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I'll show you how I know that to be the case, and I know it to be true in mine. You see, if you, um, this afternoon, this afternoon you would get a call, and it was a diagnosis from a doctor. And you're like, man, this is Sunday. Like, I know we couldn't wait any longer. We can't even wait till tomorrow to tell you this. This is really, really bad. And they gave you a diagnosis, whether it's about you, one of your children, maybe a parent. And they gave you a diagnosis that has no hope. You know what nobody's got to tell you? Hey, you ought, to, you ought to pray about that. You know what you'll do? You'll pray. You don't have to be told to pray. You'll pray. You, you, you find out tomorrow you lose your job. And you got no idea what to do next. You know what you'll do? You'll pray. Nobody has to. You don't have to call me about mad. I don't know what to do. I lost my job. We got any ideas? You'll know what to do. You'll know the first response. You'll pray. You, you let life happen. I, 25 years ago, I mean, sorry, 24 years ago, my oldest son turned 24 yesterday. He's in the back, roll tide. 24 years ago, he's a day old. I'll tell you what I was thinking 24 years ago. I'd look at him and this is what I'd go. That's what I had. That's all I had. What am I going to do with that? I'm pretty sure that will break. I'm pretty sure I have no capability whatsoever to be a dad. In fact, at one point when, when he was born, this is honestly, I'm telling the honest truth, this is the thought I had. God, I had a lot of confidence you knew what you were doing. Pretty sure this is evidence that you don't. Giving me that has to be your worst idea ever. You know what nobody had to tell me to do? Pray. In that moment, I was so in over my head, I had no option but to pray. You, get, you have kids, you let them grow up. Let something happen to one of your kids or let one of your kids go down the wrong road. One of your kids heads down the wrong road, begin to make decisions that you don't approve of find themselves in a place of addiction that you never thought they would be in. Let me tell you what you don't have to be asked to do. Nobody's got to tell you to pray. You know what you'll do? You'll pray. In fact, people with no regard for God, atheists who believe God doesn't exist, you let something bad enough happen, this is what they'll do. They'll pray. You know what they'll say? I don't believe, but I might as well try it. You know why? Because we are conditioned to think of prayer as a parachute and not as the plane that gets us to the destination. It is a response to conflict. It's a response to chaos. It's a response to circumstances. Rather than being the battle that we wage in moment by moment, which is why Paul said, praying when at all times in the spirit. It's a constant conversation. It's that prayer should become such the, it should become such the tendency of our lives that it's as though we are always praying. It's as though we're never stopping. It's just a constant conversation, constant moment with God. Let me ask you something. When you think about all of the things that the enemy tempts you with to distract you from life, to distract you from your purpose, how much, when you think, I mean, like right now, I know it's going to be a terrible exercise. I want you to think of the last time you feel like you blew it with God, that you just gave in and you did something you shouldn't have done. Let me ask you something. Would you have done that if you'd been in a spirit of prayer? 
Probably not. Probably not. But see, we think of prayer as being the preparation. Prayer is the battle. We pray at all times with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Like just keep praying. Even when you don't want to pray, you got to keep praying, making supplication for all the saints. And I love that Paul goes, and just in case your friends may not be praying, go ahead and pray for them too. The value of community, by the way, I love, I'm in a life group where we pray for each other all the time, all the time. We don't have a week that goes by somebody says, don't, hey, I, I could use some prayer. Because sometimes when we're too weak to pray, it's real healthy for somebody to be praying for you. You see, the real, the real truth is there's a whole lot of stuff, there's a whole lot of things in your locker that will help you in this fight. But it's prayer. It's how we suit up for battle. You can know everything, but to put it into action happens when you find yourself in a place where you pray in the Spirit at all times. I guess you could say it this way. The prayer closet's really the locker room. It's where you get dressed. It's how you suit up. I want to very quickly... I want to tell you two things. I, I thought about how Jesus, I thought about Jesus in prayer. And I've already mentioned his prayer in the garden, but there's another prayer in John chapter 17 where Jesus actually prays for us and it's recorded. And in that prayer, there's a place there where Jesus prays for me and you. And he says, I, I pray for them because they're in the world. I'm leaving this world, but they're still going to be in this world. And he says, I, he prays that the Father would protect us from the world and from the enemy. And he says, I, I protected them while I'm there, but I'm asking you to protect them because God, because Jesus understood 2,000 years ago, the best thing he could pray for for us is that we would have a defense against the enemy. And then one day, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. They had undoubtedly seen something in his life that made them interested to learn how he prayed. And my guess is he prayed and things happened. He prayed and he responded to people differently than they would have. He was praying and then he had a certain sensitivity about somebody's hurt or somebody's need. And whatever it was, they said, Lord,